If you have your Bibles, open them up to Matthew chapter 10. Let me just uh, kick, kick right in to, to the passage today. Uh, starting in verse 5, going through verse 25. Jesus sent out these 12 after giving them instructions. Don't take the road that leads to the Gentiles and don't enter any Samaritan town. Instead, go to the lost, go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. As you proclaim, the kingdom of heaven has come near. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse those with leprosy, drive out demons. Freely you receive, so freely give. Don't acquire gold, silver, or copper from your money belts. And don't take a traveling bag for the road or an extra shirt or sandals or a staff for, uh, for the worker is worthy of his food. And when you enter a town or village, find out one who is worthy and stay there until you leave. Greet a household when you enter it. And if the household is worthy, let your peace be on it. But if it's unworthy, let your peace return to you. If anyone does not welcome you or listen to your words, then shake the dust from your feet when you leave that house or town. Truly I tell you, it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. Uh, look, I'm sending you out like sheep among wolves. Therefore be as shrewd as serpents and as innocent as doves. Be aware of them because they'll hand you over to the local courts, courts and they'll flog you in their synagogues. You'll even be brought before governors and kings because of me to bear witness to them and to the Gentiles. But when they hand you over, don't worry about how or what you are to speak, for you will be given what to say at that hour. Because it isn't you speaking, but the spirit of your father who is speaking through you. Brother will betray brother to death and father his child uh, Children will rise up against their parents and have them put to death, and you'll be hated by everyone because of my name. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. When they persecute you in one town, flee to another, for truly I tell you, you will not have gone through all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. A disciple is not above his teacher or a slave above his master. It's enough for a disciple to become like his teacher and a slave like his master. If they, uh, if they called the head of the house Beelzebub, how much more the members of his household? So there's a lot at play here, right? Did you pick up on all the things at play in this? Far more than what I can go into, you know, like judgment worse than Sodom and Gomorrah. What's, what's that all about? And family conflict of children raising up against parent and father hating child and brother hating brother in verse 21. And what about until the, uh, you won't go into all the towns until the Son of Man returns. What's that in reference to? And uh, to your joy, I'm not going to answer any of those questions. Um, a, because they're nuanced and there's a lot of stuff to talk about. Uh, but, but B, to do that. Um, would be beyond the scope of what we have time for. Rather, what I want to do this morning is I just want to see if I can hone in on one particular angle within this text. But, but to do that, we have to have a little bit of a conversation. Now, it's a very curated conversation. You do not get the freedom to ask whatever question you want. Uh, but we're going to have a little bit of a conversation, and here's the way it's going to work. I'm going to tell you something about myself, and then I have some questions for you to ask me. I'll put them up here in a little bit. Um, and then you ask me those questions, and I'll answer those questions, okay? So not your questions, the ones that I curated, just the way sermons work, I'm sorry. But, but you guys, you may not know this, you may not know this, but I'm, a, I'm somewhat of a fisherman. You know, growing up in Tennessee, there's a lot of water uh, around, and it's just part of the culture that I, I grew up in. Ponds, lakes, streams, there's bass, there's bluegill, there's, there's catfish, and I, I know all about those fish because, well, you know, I'm a bit of a fisherman, 
You know, I, I know that for, for bluegills, you really, you just need a worm and a bobber. Like, few things work better than a worm and a bobber. And for bass, my favorite is particularly green artificial worms. I just think I've had the most success with those. And catfish, it's just whatever stinks. Whatever stinks, you throw in and you catch, catch catfish. And, and I know the ins and outs of this because I'm, I'm a fisherman. You know, growing up on special occasions, my granddad would come pick me up and he would take me out fishing with him. And a couple of times a year, I would even go visit my great uncle who had his own fishing boat and we would go out on his boat and fish together. My, my family and I, when we would go to the beach on vacation, every so often we would even take deep sea fishing tours and we would catch, you know, exotic fish in, in the Gulf of Mexico. And on mine and Haley's honeymoon, uh, we actually had a private boat chartered that took us out fishing and I caught a six-foot sailfish. I wish I still had that picture. I don't know where the picture is. Um, but you, you may not know it, but I'm a, pretty, I'm a bit of a fisherman. Now, here's your turn. Here's, here's your first question. You ready? All right. You did good. Thank you. Yeah. Well, you know, with my son being born four months ago and, and time being scarce, I've, I've really not been fishing in a year and a half or so, maybe two years, but I, I am a fisherman. All right, second question. Oh, what, what made that fishing trip memorable? Oh, yeah, I dropped my phone in the bottom of Eagle Nest Lake because I'd gotten bored and I was playing games on my phone uh, instead of fishing. But, but, I am, but I am a fisherman. And one more question. Hmm, well, uh, don't you act like, I act like I'm thinking, like I didn't already pre-write all this out? Well, I mean, I, I caught a bass at Haley's Uncle's Stocked Pond over Thanksgiving in 2019. That was the, the last time I caught a fish. But, but it, it, I caught a bass because I am a fisherman. I, I mean, yes, really, the only, I only fish when it's convenient for me. And every enjoyable fishing experience I've ever had, someone else essentially baits the hook and cleans the fish. And I don't have any fishing poles at home but it's because I can always rely on someone else to let me use theirs. And, you know, I, I come from a culture of fishermen. I'm married into a family of fishermen, and I have a couple key stories I can remember about my fishing experiences, so I must be a fisherman, right? Because, like, what? What's a fisherman anyways? A little on the nose? Yeah? Let's, let's try, try again. You know, I'm a disciple of Jesus, I've committed to following him and obeying him. I grew up in the Bible Belt, and growing up in the Bible Belt, there's a lot of churches, you know, big churches, small churches. It's just the culture I grew up in, various Christian ministries, Awanas, FCA, Vacation Bible School. I know all about them because I'm a disciple of Jesus. I mean, I have John 3.16 memorized, and I know how to find psalms in my Bible, and I know all about Jesus dying for my sins. I know the ins and outs of discipleship because, well, I am a disciple. You know, growing up on special occasions, my parents would take me to special Christian events like Billy Graham crusades. And uh, even when I was, uh, a couple times when I was young, I went across the nation on a mission trip to Arizona once or twice. My family and I, even certain times when we would go on vacations like camping, we would go to the local camp service, like church service on Sunday mornings when we couldn't make it to our actual churches. And my, my wife and I, we used Christian vows straight from the Bible during our wedding. You, you may not know it, but I, I'm somewhat of a disciple. All right, you're, you're trying to ask a question again. Oh, you know, with my son being born almost four months ago and time being scarce, 
I don't know, I've really not spent much time with Jesus in a year and a half or so. But I am a disciple, but I, but I am a, a disciple. What made that morning memorable? I think that was the morning when I was reading the daily verse on, on my phone, and that one email came through telling me that that item I wanted on my Amazon wish list for, for sale, that made me really excited. So I remember that morning, but I am a disciple. One, one more. Well, I mean, there was that one time my coworker asked me to pray for her. She did that because I, I am a disciple. I mean, yes, I really only follow Jesus when it's convenient for me, and every enjoyable worship experience I've ever had, someone else coordinated and curated for me, but I come from a culture of disciples. I married into a family of disciples. I have a couple key stories of discipleship that I can remember, so I, I must be a disciple. I mean, what is a disciple anyways? I don't mean to dig too hard. And I really do understand that life is busy and hectic, and it's really easy to find yourself three years removed from the one thing that you really did love at one time. So, so this is by no means an attempt to be accusatory. But do you see it? Because before we launch into Matthew 10, you need to understand that the concept of calling yourself a disciple and then not following Jesus is as absurd as calling yourself a fisherman and not fishing. Jesus never envisions a world or a church where those who say they follow him don't ever take action in doing so. To be a disciple of Jesus demands action. Now, now notice, I'm, I'm wanting to try to differentiate clearly here the difference between being a Christian and being a disciple, but even that feels off to me. But I, I will at least say, you do not become a Christ follower because of your goodness, your actions, or anything like that. You are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus alone, redeemed, set free from your sins. But Jesus never sets you free to go back to the way you once were. He sets you free to open you up to the new reality of living life for him. When you surrender your life to Jesus, the following step is not a step into passivity, but a step into action. So the question is, well, why don't we? Why, why does the typical stance of what it means to be a Christian in today's world really look more like dressing up on Sunday and coming to church than it does about taking the entirety of your life and handing it over to Jesus? There's a book that was written in 2013. Uh, it's called The Outsourced Self. Um, it's a really kind of interesting book. But in the book, um, the, the author, she talks at length about um, even with the modern prevalence of technology, we've actually become more and more socially disconnected. Um, and that social disconnection has led to this breakdown in community, particularly in community-based events. And so what we do now, instead of participating in things as a community, we outsource things to other people so that we don't have to deal with it. So, so think about it, right? Um, even 30 years ago, 20, 30 years ago, if you had a tree in your backyard that someone needed to chop down, that you needed to cut down, what was your option of doing that? Likeliness is you were going to have to go door to door around your neighborhood or go into your church or find somebody that had fell a tree before so that they can walk you through the process of knocking down a tree. And then you're both going to have to find a Saturday afternoon that you're both available so that they can show up and help you chop down this. It's a community event. But now, if I need a tree knocked down in my yard, you know what I'm going to do? Two options. I'm either going to look it up on YouTube and just say, I'll figure it out myself. 
or I'm going to call a tree cutting expert and say, I'll pay you and I'll outsource this to you. It's what we do. We outsource things. Things that once were done in community are now outsourced to experts. And it makes sense sometimes. Sometimes it's a little silly. So even things like how you find someone to marry. I have days, uh, memories as a child of my mom playing like matchmaker with different people in our church. That she like, you need to set this person up and they're going to go on a date. And Did you guys do anything like that years ago? I don't, I don't know if that's a thing. But anymore, you don't do that type of thing. About It's not a community. You just go online and make a dating profile. And I'm not saying it's bad. It's just the world that we live in now. Or how you raise your children. Or there's even how you name your children. There's an occupation out there. It's called namology or namologists. Uh, these are people that literally you can, uh, you can find them on TikTok, social media, different things like that. And uh, you can call them and tell them what your interests are. Here's what my family is. Here's our other kids' names. Here's our interests. Here's the type of family we are. And they will curate a list of names for you to select from for your upcoming child. Uh, you can outsource naming your child to someone else. That's what I'm getting at. And it's a little silly, right? But it is the world we live in now. We outsource everything from names and dating to, to, to fishing. Like Haley and I really did pay those guys in Cancun to take us out on a fishing boat. And they literally baited the hook. They threw it in the water. They drove the boat around into a sailfish bit on. And then I did this for an hour. And I said, look, I caught a sailfish. And I took a picture with it. I just outsource it to other people and then take credit for myself. So it's only natural then, if that's the norm in our community and in our culture, that we think we could also do the same within our church, that we can outsource discipleship. I mean, hey, I pay to let the professionals do, do ministry. It's, it's the missionary's job to go do mission work, and it's the youth minister's job to teach my youth about Jesus, and it's the kids' ministry job to teach my kids about God and the Bible, and it's the pastor's job to make sure that I'm learning more and more about the Bible. Don't, don't ask me to get involved with the poor. Don't ask me to understand community and culture and the gospel enough that I can communicate it to my friends. That's the expert's job. That's what we outsource. And in doing so, we turn church into a consumeristic event to be enjoyed when convenient or to inspire us when we need inspiration. But it's not participatory. In fact, the most participatory it gets is maybe putting a 20 in the offering plate as it comes by and standing up and singing the songs. But outside of that, don't, don't ask me to get deeper involved into this. But to believe that is to be swayed by culture rather than to be transformed by the presence of your Savior who quite literally calls you to do what he did who calls you to live as he lived, to call you to demand, put a demand on you of a life of contending, which flies directly in the face of our culture of consuming. Uh, in his book, The Reappearing Church, Mark Sayers says this. He says, consumer Christianity compromises the cross with self. It mixes the worship of God with the worship of options, personal autonomy, low commitment, and opinion over responsibility. So we've started living in this world of unlimited options, opening us to a culture of maybes and I, I might if nothing better comes along, rather than a culture of commitment. But for Jesus, when someone claims they want to follow him, that journey is not marked by, well, generally, Jesus, I, I want to follow you as long as nothing better comes along, I'll give my life to you. But for Jesus, it's marked by totally laying aside yourself and following him to do what he did. There is no such thing as passive Christianity. 
So if I could just boil Matthew 10 to a point before we start looking at the text, it might be something like this. And I understand how cheesy this feels, and I'm sorry, but it's the best I can come up with. Intentionally living like Jesus means living like Jesus. I don't know how else to make that what the Bible is telling us. There is no way to say you live like Jesus and then to not live like Jesus. The invitation is to give your life to him and then live as he lived. This is exactly what this passage is all about. So in Matthew chapter 10, we come to Jesus' second block of teaching. So in Matthew's gospel, there's two major blocks at the beginning. The first block of Jesus' teaching is what we call the Sermon on the Mount, right? Uh, Matthew 5, 6, and 7. And this block is all about how do we interact with one another? How, how do we create these new Jesus communities that aren't marked by anger or lust, but they're marked by compassion and kindness and giving to one another and sacrifice? That's what the first block is. The second block of text is all about how do we interact with people outside of the church? How do we interact with the lost people in the world around us? And I think if we could just get a core component of how do we interact with lost people, Jesus' core component is compassion. So if you backtrack up to chapter 9 at the very end, when Jesus, in verse 36, it says, When he saw the crowds, he felt compassion for them, because they were distressed and dejected, like sheep without a shepherd. Jesus' fundamental response to the human race is a response of compassion. Yeah, there's times when he gets angry and flips tables. There's times when he weeps over Jerusalem. There's times when he rebukes his disciples. There's times when he calls out hypocrisy. But at the default heart posture of Jesus, when he looks at you and humanity, he sees someone in desperate need of help. So he has compassion. That's, that's why he calls us sheep. So here's a little, I just figured I would play this gift for you for a little bit so you can see it uh, because it's just a good reminder of sheep. So I'll just, I'll let that loop for you while I talk a little bit about sheep. Because sheep, right? I mean, when we look at sheep, they're the most clueless of all animals. They, they wander off. They get lost. Uh, most of their problems are self-inflicted. This is what it means to be a sheep. But in the end, you can't hate sheep, right? You, you can't get just so frustrated. Oh, man, it went fast mode there. Jesus doesn't hate people. He has compassion for them. He brings them truth and offers them restoration. And then in chapter 10, verse 6, look what he says. Instead, go to the lost sheep, the house of Israel. Do, do you remember two weeks ago, we did those brackets from Matthew chapter 4 to Matthew chapter 9. I have a, the brackets from two weeks ago just to show you. There's enough sheep footage for the day. That in chapter 4, verse 23 Matthew gives us this kind of statement about how Jesus went out teaching, proclaiming the good news of the gospel and healing the sick, poor, and diseased. And then in chapter 9, he gives the exact same phrase, and it's bracketing off what Jesus did. Well, then if you look, just jump down to verse 7 of chapter 10, Jesus is going to say, As you go, proclaim the kingdom of heaven. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse those with leprosy, drive out demons it's all the things that Jesus did extended to his disciples that they should now go and do. Jesus' call to follow him is not just follow me, it's follow me, then do what I did. It's follow me, then go. Go contend. 
go participate, go serve, go have compassion, go communicate truth. And you may say, Philip, that's so much easier said than done. You have no idea how busy I am. You have no idea the types of things that I have going on in my life. You don't understand the complexity of it. And I would just say, I do understand. And Jesus actually understands the complexity of this. Because as you look at this text, Jesus understands that it's not easy. It's actually rather quite complex. And he says there's this real detailed and intentional balance that has to be struck up to figure out what it means to properly and effectively interact with lost people in our community. So, so just look through this text in chapter 10 of all these complex balances that Jesus has. I have a chart for you to look at as, as I go through these. So in chapter 10, verse 1, right, Jesus is going to say, hey, summoning the 12 disciples, he gave them authority. So they're the ones that have authority. And then in verse 6, he says to go out to the lost sheep. So you're the ones that have authority. You're the ones to go to the sheep. But then in verse 16, he says, look, I'm sending you out like sheep among wolves. Well, which are we, Jesus? Are we the sheep or are they the sheep? Are we the ones with authority or are they the ones with authority, Jesus? And Jesus seems to say it's actually more complex. It takes time to think through these realities, to participate within. It is both you with authority going to the sheep, and it is you going as a sheep into a den of wolves. Both are at play when we follow and do what Jesus did. But when we go, we have compassion, verses 6 and 8, that, that we actually think and respond and treat people the way Jesus did. Go to the lost sheep in the house of Israel. As you go, proclaim the kingdom of heaven has come near. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse those with leprosy, drive out demons. Freely you receive, so freely give. The compassion that Jesus showed to you, go show to other people. But then he comes in in verse 14 and he says this. And if anyone does not welcome you or listen to your words, shake the dust off your feet when you leave that house or town. Shaking the dust off your feet was this symbolic act of judgment and separation and rejection that was common among the Jewish elites at the time. So if you were a Pharisee or a scribe and you had to walk through some Gentile town or some Samaritan town, on your way out, it was this way of kicking the dust off your feet as this symbolic gesture of these people are not included in God's plan, but I am. I don't want to have to participate, but I had to walk through, so let me just kick the dust off. It's a statement of rebuke of rejection. And Jesus says, there is a world where you go out into the world and then they don't respond to you. And so you say, I shake the dust off. I, I rebuke. I reject. And I move to the next place. It is both compassion and rebuke. It's preaching the kingdom, verse 7, and healing, verse 8. So it's not just going out and witnessing to the lost and getting as many Bible tracts as you can possibly get out into the community and then refusing to care for the poor and needy. But, but neither is it caring for the poor and needy, but refusing to tell them about their lostness and their need to be restored through the salvation and sacrifice of Jesus. And those are just like the big complexities at play here. What about verse 9 and 10? In verse 9, he says, don't acquire money. Don't acquire gold, silver, or copper for your money belts. Don't, verse 10, take a traveling bag for the road or an extra shirt, sandals, or a staff. And then he says, for the worker is worth his food. So it's clear that the disciples are not supposed to be going out and doing this for the sake of making gain, but there is some expectation that when they go into the community, the community is going to meet their needs in provision and provide them with food and shelter and all this other stuff. So it's, it's not about the money, but it is about allowing resources for the sake of ministry to come in. 
And then he says in verse 11, in verse 1, that he's going to send them into all the villages. Go out into the villages. And then he says, just stay in one house. Go into all the villages, but stay in one house. Jesus, is that really the best strategy to reach a village? I mean, I feel like a better strategy would be to go into like all the houses and have community events. And Jesus says, find one particular family. Focus there. Do ministry with them. Participate in life with them. So, so go do ministry everywhere, but be methodical and mindful as you do it. It's not about relying on your own resources, but instead it's about being utterly dependent upon God's provision. And so that demands you being a good steward of what God provides and a good steward of the method that he's sending you out with. He says that there are times that you might be met with openness, that a house would welcome you in, and you can respond accordingly to that. But there would be times that you would be met with rejection. He tells them in verse 5 that they're to stay in Israel, but in verse 13 he assumes that they're going to wind up in front of Gentiles. They'll take you to their courts, and you'll even be proclaiming to kings and Gentiles. And then in verse 16 he, he gives the classic I'm sending you out as sheep, so be as shrewd as serpents and as innocent as doves. Do you see the complex balances that Jesus is calling you to? Now, I don't want to overcomplicate evangelism because I think there is a simplicity that we need to participate in. But it is also this thing that demands prayer and constant need of consideration and wisdom and strategy. But, but here's what I want to get at. I want to show you all of that and then say this. None of that matters if we don't start here with the word go. Who cares about what may or may not happen if we just stick around in this room and we never actually go do anything? It's all irrelevant until the point you actually step foot and start communicating Jesus to people who need to hear. Doing what Jesus did means putting yourself in proximity to the lost. If all we're going to do is live our lives in our churches and our Christian bubbles with some sporadic events throughout the year that we hope lost people just might show up to and, and maybe they'll hear the gospel, we've missed Jesus' commanded model of his disciples. The commanded model is not build a church and hope they come. The commanded model is go. Live life, participate with, communicate to, interact with, go into the community. See, Jesus' command is not to put on an event and hope people show up. It's to go live in the midst of. See, events, they're great for fellowship and relationship here. That's why next weekend we want to do the, the football game. We want to do the bonfire. We, we want to have fellowship and relationship with one another. But, but when it comes to events for the sake of getting those people out here in, I would just say event-based evangelism has become less and less compelling. But do you know what is compelling? You are. Your story with Jesus is compelling. If Jesus has changed your life, you might say, Philip, you don't know, it's, it's not that great of a story. I'm telling you, if Jesus has transformed you, it is compelling. Relationship with you is compelling. Sitting across the dinner table with you, with your neighbor, is compelling. People don't care about what this church looks like. I can't tell you how many people drive by and they don't even notice we exist. But your coworker knows you exist. But your family member knows you exist. See, this it's beautiful and amazing, and as grateful as I am for it, this is not compelling. You are compelling. You are the means by which Jesus has called the gospel to go into Portalis. But that takes time. 
It puts demands on you. It will require saying no to some things and being mindful about what you say yes to and why you say yes to those things. And sometimes it's going to be messy. I mean, putting yourself in the proximity of lost will put you in the proximity of messy people that will do messy things. And when those messy things put them into crisis, guess who they usually end up calling? You. But what more could we ask for? What better chance to show them the compassion that Jesus has given us to show them? And they may listen, and they may not. They may even lash out. Verse 24, a disciple's not above his teacher or a slave above his master. It's enough for a disciple to become like his teacher and a slave like his master. If they called the head of the house Beelzebub, how much more will the members of his household? See, Jesus' message, it's an offensive message. Now, we never need to add any sort of offense or antagonism or arrogance. You don't need to be a jerk to communicate the gospel, okay? It doesn't help. We just merely relay with compassion the outlandish, enormous claims of Jesus. The claims that Jesus made that he is, in fact, God incarnate. Before Abraham, I am. He quotes God's phrase to Moses as the eternal being from the beginning, from eternity to eternity. I am existence. Jesus, God incarnate, creator and judge of the world, has come to rescue us. To rescue us from ourselves, to rescue us from our own sins. And he claims that he's actually the only rescue from our sin. And everyone, no matter how good they believe themselves to be, are actually broken beyond repair. And they can't find restoration unless they come lay themselves before the sacrifice and goodness of Jesus. And maybe that's you today. Maybe you're saying, Philip, none of this matters because I don't even know where I stand with God. And I would just say Jesus has invited you to know about that, that you can be set free, forgiven, redeemed, and given a new identity to go and participate in this. So if that's you, we're going to have a time. I'd love for you to respond to that. Talk to me before you leave today. But you should know if you already believe that, that what Jesus claims is anger-inducing and offensive but it is the claim of Jesus. And to believe that claim is not to come to church and to generally live a moral life when it's convenient. To believe that claim is to lay your life before the king so that he may restore you and give you a new identity and then raise you to be a disciple. That you can go and make disciples. There is not an alternative that Jesus is pleased with. There is not another way that Jesus says, ah, that's all right, we'll allow it to slide this time. For Jesus, you either buy into this thing or you don't. And the invitation is come, follow me, lay it all down. Because here's the reality, and this is what we'll close with. You cannot outsource discipleship. You cannot outsource the growth of this church. You cannot outsource ministries that we have or ministries that we need. You can't outsource the salvation to this town. You can't outsource the discipleship of your coworkers. God has called you. Not just to sit. Not just to give money. Not to play any sort of passive role. All of that is like calling yourself a fisherman and never fishing. Jesus is calling you to real, active discipleship. Now, I I can't tell you what that looks like officially. 
I can't tell you what means he, he's calling you to. I can't tell you who he's calling you to. That's between you and the Holy Spirit. And I want to give you some time to just reflect on that as, as we close out. So really what I want to do is just give you that space. Because here's what you need to understand. The health of First Baptist Church, that the health of us cannot be determined by me or this building or our method of church governance. All of those things can play a role and they're, they're important. But more than anything else, what determines whether or not we are a healthy church is you. Whether or not this is serious and you're willing to participate in this or not. So as we close, rather than closing with kind of the traditional invitation that we've done, uh, I'm going to ask David and, and Kinsey and Joby to come back up. I just want you to stay seated. I want to give you a few minutes just to spend some time in prayer. And I want you just to pray a couple things. One, God, have I really given it all over to you? God, if there's something in my life that I'm holding on to, my busyness, my schedule, things that are just not of your importance, would you give me the ability to give that up as I lay my life upon the altar? And then to ask two other questions. One is, God, who is it that you would have me go and tell about this? And just, just pray that and just stop. I'm not trying to be mystical or anything like that, but I would just say, just say, God, would you call someone to mind that I can reach out to and have compassion on? And then trust that the Holy Spirit can actually bring a name to your mind. And if he brings a name to your mind, then to write that name down and start praying about a way you can actually go to that person. And after you've done that, to maybe pray the prayer, God, is there a ministry you would like me to participate in? That might be right here at First Baptist. We always need help. Talk to me. I can find a place for you to plug in. It may not be. It may be something that you need to start at your work. It may be something you need to start in your home. It may be regularly family devotions. I don't know. But something that God would say, here's what I want you to do. So we're just going to take a few moments for you to sit and pray as David sings. Father God, we thank you for this. Let us pray to you and come to you in glory and goodness. God, communicate to us through your spirit that we would not be a church that sits, but a church that goes. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.